Good morning, church. Long weekend, right? God is good. Just in time. Here we are. And it just worked out that this is the weekend in which we conclude our series on Colossians. And we have been in this book now for, for about three months, quite a while. I, I hope you've enjoyed the series as much as I've enjoyed preparing it. Um, and if that's not the case for you. I mean, that's that's okay. We're open to hearing complaints or suggestions. You can email us at Christopher Luke at MCB. No, it's, Chris, it's it's so good that you could be here today, uh, not just to celebrate uh, with us and share the gifts that God has given to you. If there are any doubt that music is sometimes written into the DNA and it's on the X chromosome, uh, there it is in your family. But it gives our own worship teams uh, a very welcome reprieve and, and a rest. So thank you for being being here. Last week, we talked about this image of of taking something off. We need to take off a, a false self, because the reality is that when we live out of the wrong sense of self, a, a, a false self, we are settling. Uh, we are settling for something less. It's, it's like we're subsisting on a meal of scraps instead of the feast that God has in mind for us. When we live out of a false self, we're always settling for something less than what God has designed for our lives. And we settle for a false identity, a fake version of ourselves. And we do this in all kinds of ways. We're not even close to the, to the expansive brilliance of the real thing, of the core identity, the true self that God really made you to be. And you remember all this language, false self, true self, this is rooted in the book of Colossians in chapter 3. Let me just take you back a little bit. If you have your Bibles, let's read that preamble, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, you have taken off your old self with all of its practices, and you have put on this new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of its creator. Here there is, he says, no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. It's not that there was anything wrong with those things, but they're not deep enough. Here's the deep piece. In Christ. Christ is all, and Christ is in all. And then he goes on to say, and he starts with that little word, therefore. You remember last week, whenever you see the word, therefore, what do you do? You stop and you look back, because what's coming next builds upon everything that has just come. And for three chapters, the Apostle Paul has been very carefully making sure that the focus is square and centrally on Jesus. So what he's about to say here is predicated on this understanding that Jesus and Jesus alone is at the center. Therefore, he says, verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, put this on. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Goes on to talk about forgiveness, about but bearing each other, but holding each other up. And then he concludes in verse 17. And whatever you do, whatever you do in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Underline that if you have the ability to do that in your Bibles or on your phones. Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And as you do it, give thanks to God the Father through him. So 
identity. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit this morning about identity. How is it that you understand your identity? What is, what is the truth about you, the truth about me? It's a difficult conversation because identity is it's this multi-layered thing. We have all these layers that make up who we are. For some of us, our core identity is defined by our activities, the things that we love to do. That's, that's who we are. Some of you, some of you are fitness nuts. You're gym rats. You're burpees and, and pull-ups and long runs and the dawn's early light. Some of you identify yourself through your interests. It's a common one. If you're a sports nut, you live in the jersey of your favorite team. That's key to who you are. Or you're a little bit of a nerd, uh, a geek, and I, we have some solidarity there. You know, you're the kind of person that this was your month, the month of May, because we had May the 4th, right? You know that, May the 4th. And there you were, totally into the clever wordplay, May the 4th be with you. You put on your, your Star Wars t-shirt, you got out your prop lightsaber. That was your day. That's who you are. It's part of your identity. For some, and this is getting at some of the deeper levels, your primary identity is grounded in your race or your ethnicity, especially, this is important, especially if you are part of an ethnicity that has faced oppression or injustice. This might be a really key part of the story of who you are. Of course, a hot topic in our culture right now is just how much of your identity is grounded in your gender or your sexuality, or your orientation. But maybe the biggest one of them all, in fact, is, is our jobs, our vocation. What is it, the first thing that, that comes out of your mouth? How do we introduce ourselves to someone else? Hi, my name is Richard. I'm six feet tall, about 215 pounds. Uh, I'm a lapsed gym nut. I am a long-suffering fan who tolerates the Maple Leafs. Caucasian, Canadian-born, heteronormative, male. Now, we... We don't do that. But you're more likely to say, hey, I'm a teacher, or I'm a software engineer, or, I'm a graphic designer, or in my case, I'm a, I'm a pastor of a little country church in the village of Mississauga. I mean, here we are. Identity has all these layers to it. Some people use the analogy of an, of an onion. You just peel back. There's layer after layer after layer. But unlike an onion... There is something at the core of who you are. An onion is just an onion. It's, it's onion all the way down. All of those layers, activities, interests, ethnicity, orientation, occupation. It just goes all the way down, but there's nothing at the heart of it. You're not an onion. Turn to somebody next to you and just tell them that. Look them right in the eyes and say, hey, you're not an onion. You may smell like a... No, just don't, don't do that. You're... <laughs> These are important things about our lives. Um, these are important identity statements. But what's at the core? What is your true self? The Apostle Paul in Colossians is really clear. The Bible is clear. For those who are followers of Jesus, our core identity is in Christ. Remember how many times in the book of Colossians we have paused to underline those words, in Christ? You are in Christ. All things were made by him and for him. Doesn't it make sense? that that's at the heart of who you are. You have a new name, a new identity. It goes further and deeper than all of those other identities. You're no longer just Gentile or Jew. It's not race and ethnicity that's at the core. 
circumcised or uncircumcised. It's maybe about religion more than sexuality. Barbarians, these are the Florida Panther fans. And, and Scythians, fans of the Cleveland Cavaliers. You know, slave or free. I mean, all of that is secondary to this. Christ is all, and Christ is in all, which means he's in you. We are his. It's your true self. But, but what does that actually mean? I mean, the words come so quickly and easily off our lips. In Jesus' name we pray. Of course we do. But what does it mean to invoke the name of Jesus, to take on the name of Jesus, to live with that as our core identity? And I'll admit that there's a part of this that's just, it's really hard if you look in at what's happening in the name of Jesus. You can read, as I did this week, accounts of, of extreme right-wing gatherings where they begin in prayer and they use the name of Jesus. Well, at the same time, on, on the other side of the city, there's another, another gathering, extreme left-leaning Christians gathering together in prayer, also invoking the name of Jesus. And what's disturbing, what's disturbing is that these groups seem to hate each other. And they spew rhetoric filled with, with vitriol and anger and fear. Is that what it means? To do things in the name of Jesus? In the 1500s, there was a, a group of Christians that, that held on to some exciting, fresh, new, I think, inspired ways of understanding the Bible, the, the great Reformation. They advocated some, some much-needed new ideas, some, some theology. They were deemed heretics at the time. Many of them were tortured and killed in the name of Jesus, by other Christians. Centuries earlier, Christians went to war for Jesus. In the name of Jesus, they went crusading through Jerusalem, killing tens of thousands of Jews and Muslims. In that era, Christians became known for their violence. Violence being God's great coercive tool to bring people to faith. Is that what it means to live for Jesus? Do we have a... We have a problem. I mean, maybe it's just me, but I have a problem because in, in the circle of my friends and my peers, there are people who are becoming less and less interested in Jesus, in the faith of those who, who name Jesus. And one of the reasons they're confused and turned off is because they're dismayed, actually more than just dismayed, they are disgusted by what they see being done by those who invoke the name of Jesus. And that's why this passage, this passage we're landing on today that we're concluding with today, is probably one of the most important words for the church in our generation, in any generation. Because Paul is going to speak to the core issue of what's going on. And if only we could really, really grasp it. Or actually, that's not true. If it really grasped us, if we could live it out, I honestly believe that we would see people compelled and drawn to Jesus. That your life and this movement, this Jesus movement that bears his name, they would be undeniable. Our relationships would change. The way we do our jobs would change. Life would be filled with, with meaning and hope and joy instead of a thousand activities that are meant to numb the pain of life. So that's today. Today is, at the end of this study, is going to be an invitation to live into your truest self, your core identity. And we're going to do that by looking at these words together in Colossians 3, in verse 12. I invite you to read them 
as I uh, offer them to you. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself. You're going to put something on. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and peace. Quick pause here. Do you notice anything about that list of virtues? I mean, the Apostle Paul, in, in the letters that he writes, is quite fond of listing out virtues. But there's something interesting about this list. Because there are lots of virtues out there, and there's a whole bunch that are noticeably absent from this list. It, it doesn't say anything about courage, self-control, perseverance, wisdom, all, all good attributes, virtues. Doesn't mention anything. What makes this list unique? Everything here has to do with how we relate to other people. These are all the virtues of relationship. Let's continue. Verse 14. And over all of these virtues put on love, which has the power to bind them together in perfect harmony. So there it is. What does it look like to live out of our truest self, our core identity? To live in his name is to live in love. What does it look like for a follower of Jesus to live from their truest self? Love, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness. Robert Mulholland, a writer, says this, that the place where we live out our relationship of loving union with God is not in the quiet of our prayer closet. That's important too. But in our relationships with one another. For here is where we put to death the manipulative, coercive, controlling dynamics of the false self. And here is where we abandon the dehumanizing and abusive dynamics of that false self. And we love others. Paul continues unpacking this this idea, our core identity, our true self. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. As members of this one body, Jesus, you are called together to peace. Be thankful. And and he ends in verse 17 with with these words. Some of you know these and you memorized these. I did. Uh, Verse 17, whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or in deed, Do it in love and do it in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God. Whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. That was a favorite of mine as a teenager, partly because it was short and I could actually, it would stick in my memory. But as I grew, I actually, through, through many seasons in ministry, I had those words written on the wall of my office. They were kind of a, a functional reminder that every niggling phone call, Not you, your phone calls are never that, but every tedious task, every unwelcome interruption, that these could be occasions for worship in the name of Jesus. I think that's a, it was a helpful interpretation for me. But there's an even deeper way to think about these words. And in order to do that, I'm going to have you keep one finger in Colossians and flip with me to the little letter that comes towards the end of the New Testament, 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. Some of you will know these words by heart. 1 John 4, 16, God is love. Say that with me. God is love. That's an identity statement, isn't it? 
That is the core identity of God. God is love. And here comes our identity statement. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God is in them. And if God is love, if that is the core identity, then maybe, and this is kind of like scriptural algebra where you substitute terms, maybe another way to read that scripture from Colossians 3 is whatever you do, in word or in deed, whatever you do, do it in the name of love. Because God is love. That doesn't mean that God isn't lots of other things. It doesn't mean that we're not passionate about truth and justice. It doesn't mean that we're soft on sin. I'm tired of that. When you talk about love, it means you're soft on sin. It's love that makes us want to talk about sin. But when we talk about sin in love, we do it with tears in our eyes, not anger in our voice. And there's a difference. Whatever you do, do it in love. It helps clarify our actions. And it helps really lift out and expose, reveal all the things that that get mixed up into our identities and can pollute our witness. When we're doing it not in the name of love, not in the name of God, but our own political views creep in. Our own particular persuasions and preferences and worldview. And when we do things not in the name of love, but in the name of our own interests. But we pretend that Jesus is carrying the day. That's when things have always gone sideways for the witness of God's people, the church. We do things in the name of love. We can ask ourselves, is what I'm doing in this moment filled with compassion, kindness, patience? And if not, maybe I'm actually doing this in my own name. Not in the name of Jesus. I want to talk a little bit about the obstacles. Because to live in his name, the name of love, I mean, that, that sounds, it sounds so good. It is so hard. Isn't it? There are just so many barriers there. If we're going to live with this as our core identity, make this our true self, then we've got to be honest and reveal and confront the barriers. And the first barrier is simply this. I think every person out there, maybe, maybe sociopaths have an illness that prevents them, but every, every other person out there believes in love. I mean, at least in theory. I'm sure at least one of you have heard the word love invoked in a sermon before, have you? And so you come to this sermon and we just sort of, we shut down a little bit. We think, okay, I got it. Love, 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 of course. Bring on the donuts. I'm going to go home and watch the baseball game, whatever it is. Everyone agrees with love in theory. But what kind of love are we talking about here? Years ago, some of you remember this, a lot of you won't. There was a commercial, kind of an infamous commercial. They ran it a lot. It was, it was about pet adoption. Series of clips, some of the saddest looking dogs and cats paraded across the the screen. And all the time, Sarah McLaughlin is singing in the arms of an angel. And people would watch and they'd think, oh my gosh, I'm going to adopt a dozen dogs and cats. I'm going to feed them steak and tuna every day and they'll sleep in my bed. I'm just going to love them so much. But then the commercial would end and the game would come back on and... Then I'd start to think, you know what? I already have a cat. And I, and I have three kids who have their own issues with potty training. Maybe I don't need a dozen pets. That's sentimental love, right? 
And we are sentimental people when we love just in theory. Maybe you're the kind of person you cry in every episode of Bridgerton or This Is Us. You have compassion for the characters. But if you're honest, you have a hard time caring about real people in your actual life. Or how about this? Many of us are are good and, and, and maybe fairly prolific in posting on social media in cases where we want to express love or cry out against injustice. But how much action do we really take in our real lives? How much do we really express love tangibly in the lives of those that we claim we're on their side, we're fully aligned with, with those who who need most what God brings, the, the broken, the poor, the marginalized. We love them at a distance. I mean, here's open hands. They've had their hat in hands now for four weeks, saying, is there anybody in the household of God who has an hour and a half once a month to drive down and pick up some food for people who are hungry? There's a disconnect between sentimentality and love and theory, and love as an action. It's easy to love in theory. Sentimental love is easy. But love is not sentimental. It's not theoretical. And in the Bible, it's rarely ever an emotion. It's always an action. And it's an action that happens in the realm of relationships. Love doesn't happen from a distance. It happens up close, immediately, inconveniently, in the context of our own lives. Eugene Peterson said that, You know, love is the most context-specific act in the entire spectrum of human behavior. There is no other single human act more dependent on and immersed in the immediate context of our lives. To live in love is hard because it's, it's easy to love somebody at a distance in the developing world dealing with poverty when they see their face on the screen. But it's hard to love people up close. It's hard to to love Bernice at work who won't stop talking about conspiracy theories and always brings cucumber sandwiches to work and and chews gum with her mouth open. And Bernice, see, the easiest way to find out if we're living actually in the name of love is to look at our most immediate context, spouse, kids, in-laws, co-workers, parents, our boss, our neighbors, the person experiencing homelessness that you cross paths with every day and sometimes cross to the other side of the street to avoid. Our friends who disagree with us politically. Are these the relationships of our lives that are clothed in compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness? Some questions you might want to reflect on. Is there a relationship in your life that you know, if you're honest, is built more on your own agenda than it is on the name of Jesus and on the love of Jesus? Would the people who know you best, your immediate context, would they say that you are a person clothed in compassion and kindness and humility? What would that even look like? Not just love in theory but love in action. Another barrier to to living out of this identity, this core identity, 
is that, you know, even though we're not onions, we do still have layers. And sometimes it's hard to get through all of the layers to love the core of another person. We make all these assumptions based on people's origins, their ethnicity, their preferences, their viewpoints. But do we actually see? I mean, do we really see? Can we see the way Jesus saw? One of the things that Jesus always got in trouble for, again and again and again, was his refusal, absolute refusal, to see people only through common societal standards and labels. He saw far beyond a label like prostitute, or assumptions about what it meant to be a tax collector, or stereotypes about those who were labeled unclean. He associated with religious people and irreligious people, with the poor and the rich, with Romans and Jews, because none of those said anything about the core identity of those who were created and bear the imago Dei, the image of God, in their lives. And Jesus knew this reality that everyone was created at some level, however hidden, however distorted, in the image of his Father. Peel back the layers, and every human being is a divine creation, immortal, fashioned for eternity. That'll stop you in your tracks. C.S. Lewis said it like this, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are all mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. You know, little bug. It is immortals we joke with, Lewis says. It is immortals that we work with and marry and snub and exploit. How would our actions change if if we saw our barista, our neighbor, our Muslim friend, that nagging soccer parent, uh, that, uh, that high school bully, if we saw them as an immortal soul, not just the sum of all the labels that we might want to apply to them. What if we saw them as a beautiful, sacred creation? Maybe that could help peel back the layers and labels, not just in their lives, but actually in ours too. To love ourselves more fully. It would certainly make sense of that that lofty, almost unattainable idea that we ought to love other people, our neighbors, as we love ourselves. And the the even more impossible idea that this should extend to our enemies, even when they belittle us and disparage us. That was the reality of Jesus. You remember how belittled he was and mocked and eventually executed? And the cross, I mean, the cross is where where it all comes into singular focus. When you wonder about your truest self, your core identity, what it looks like to live in his name, go there. Go back to the cross. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. And everybody's waiting on bated breath. This is how we know what love is. What is it? Jesus laid down his life for us. Well, that part we know. That part, it's, it's, it's deeply humbling, but we like that part. He loved us that much. But the verse goes on. Therefore, we ought to lay down our own lives for others, for our brothers and sisters. That part, we like not so much. So Colossians uses this language. You need to take something off. You need to put something on. 
You need to lay down the burden of your own self, which really, it's just this old self, this, this false self, it's just, it's settling. You don't need that. It's settling for something less than, and God always wants something greater than for you. You need to take off that old self, put on the new self. At a pivotal moment in, in Jesus' life, he does exactly that. He does it physically. He does it symbolically. He does it illustratively. You remember that moment in his final hours? Jesus knew what was ahead. The Bible says Jesus knew that his hour had come. Clock was ticking, and he knew, he knew the moment of his own death was imminent. What does he do? He gathers together his friends. They're sitting in an upper room. What's he going to do? What will be the lasting message that he wants to leave with his followers, those who will bear his name? What does he do? He takes something off, his outer garment. He puts something on. What does he put on? A servant's apron and a towel. And he gets on his knees. And he sacrifices position, priority, power, esteem. And he serves. That's how the Bible describes him, isn't it? He came not to be served, but to serve. Humbled himself. Think about that. The Son of God humbled himself. Not just a little bit, to the, but to the point of death. And then called his followers, those who would bear his name, his identity, to do the same. To make that the deepest part of who they are. I'm going to give you some examples of what that has looked like through history. This is going to be a whirlwind, five minutes. Are you still awake? Do this a little bit, okay? All right. Okay. During the days of the early church, there were several epidemics and plagues that swept through the Roman Empire, through its villages and through its cities. Public health policy, if it existed at all, was harsh and it was cruel. All it meant was you push the sick as far away as possible. You cast them out on the roadways and you leave them there to die. You stop the spread of disease by cutting them out of society. But there was this little band of Jesus people. Those who bore the name and the identity of Jesus. And and they did just the opposite. Listen to how, how an ancient historian, a man named Dionysius, he describes them. He said, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of others, heedless of the danger. Let me say that again. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, ministering to them in Christ, and with them they departed this life serenely happy, and the best of our brothers and sisters lost their lives in this manner. Another Christian author, a man named Lucian, said, it's our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that will brand us in the eyes of our opponents. Only look, our opponents will say, look how they love one another. They, the opponents themselves, being given over to mutual hatred. Look how they're prepared to die for one another. They themselves being readier to kill each other. Lucian goes on to say, Thus had this saying become true. Hereby shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love for one another. Can you imagine for a second what it would be like if that were said about Christians in this generation? You know, the first hospitals were all built 
in the name of Jesus and populated by people who understood that that was their core identity. They created little communities to care for the sick and the starving, and, and they did it in the name of Jesus. In fact, it at one of the decisive moments in the life of the church, one of the pivotal conferences, a gathering called the Council of Nicaea, Christians decreed that wherever a cathedral existed, there would be a hospital, a place where they could care for the sick and the poor in the name of Jesus. That was key. It happened in the name of Jesus. Years later, Henri Dumont, a follower of Jesus, he couldn't stand anymore the sound of soldiers crying out in the battlefield after being wounded. So he devoted his life in the name of Jesus, to helping wounded soldiers. He started an organization that bore the great symbol of its master, the Red Cross. Years later, during the Holocaust, there's there's this little Protestant village in France led by a Presbyterian minister. We like Presbyterians, right? Yeah. They provided refuge swelling their ranks and, and receiving more than 5,000 people who were fleeing Nazi persecution. The entire village, I read, was caught up in this, this Jesus mission. Even the children were involved. In fact, when a Nazi official tried to organize a Hitler youth camp in that village, it was the kids. It was the children who said, here we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It's contrary to the gospel. In the name of Jesus, they resisted and they prevailed. Years after that, a five-year-old girl in India named Kashi abducted. For more than a decade, she was forced into sexual slavery, servicing 20 men or more every day. Then one day, five years later, 15 years old, a group of social workers show up. Came from an organization called IJM, International Justice Mission, started by a Christian lawyer longing to bring justice into the dark places of the world in the name of Jesus. In 2006, an Amish Christian community, five young girls tragically gunned down, many, many more severely, life alteringly injured the gunman too, a member of that community. The mother of the gunman, also a member of that community, overcome with shock and horror and pain, she planned to sneak away in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, several of those Amish folk, in the name of Jesus, came to her house to offer forgiveness, to ask her to stay. She said some of those Amish families, the families of the victims, even attended her son's funeral, the murderer. This is what the mother said. She said, for the mother and father who had just lost not one but two precious daughters, lost them at the hand of our son, for them to come to the funeral and be the first ones to greet us. Is there anything in this life that we should not forgive? Story after story after story of sacrificial love. This, this is our true self, our core identity in the world. And I promise you the world is searching for it desperately, not banging gongs, not clanging cymbals, not nuanced theological stands, not people who have it all together 
and certainly not people cajoling and crying out just how desperately bad the world has become and how bad its people are. It's been my experience, I don't know about you, that any scolding I've ever received in my life has only ever had lasting impact when it's come from people that I knew really loved me. We lead with love. And because our master took off his garments and put on that towel, we just need to, we need to put off, take off. Everything that is false, our, all of our own agendas and ideas and, and put on Christ. I hope we can do that. I'm not going to pretend it's easier. It happens all at once. But maybe start looking beyond the labels and, and strive to see the image of God in other people. Maybe go beyond sentimentality and, and see love as an action and put it into practice. And, and whenever we invoke the name of Jesus, may it be in a way that brings delight to God and delight to the people who hear it. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you. We're grateful people. We, we remember everything that you've done for us on the cross. Because it's us. We're the ones who are down and out. We are the ones who are broken. And you came to us with forgiveness and compassion and humility and meekness and patience and love. This is our story, God. So Jesus, would you teach us, teach us again what it means to follow you in this way? When the world tells us that, that life is all about getting our own way, setting our own rhythms, living out our own preferences. Help us, God, to go a different way. Would you show us this week, Lord, in, in small acts, the people we already know, we cross paths with them every day. Help us to lay down everything that is false about who we are and to take up the name of Jesus, our core identity, our true self. For as always, it is in Jesus' name that we live and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.